Book Seven, Chapter Two of the History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book Seven, Chapter Two. Modern Mexico. Settlement of the Country, Condition of the Natives, Christian Missionaries, Cultivation of the Soil, Voyages and Expeditions. In less than four years from the destruction of Mexico, a new city had risen on its ruins, which, if inferior to the ancient capital in extent, surpassed it in magnificence and strength. It occupied so exactly the same site as its predecessor that the Plaza Mayor, or Great Square, was the same spot which had been covered by the huge Teocalli and the Palace of Montezuma, while the principal streets took their departure as before from this central point, and passing through the whole length of the city, terminated at the principal causeways. Great alteration, however, took place in the fashion of the architecture. The streets were widened, many of the canals were filled up, and the edifices were constructed on a plan better accommodated to European tastes, and the wants of a European population. On the site of the temple of the Aztec war-god rose the stately cathedral dedicated to St. Francis, and, as if to complete the triumphs of the cross, the foundations were laid with the broken images of the Aztec gods. In a corner of the square, on the ground once covered by the House of Birds, stood a Franciscan convent, a magnificent pile, erected a few years after the conquest by a lay brother, Pedro de Gante, a natural son, it is said, of Charles V. In an opposite quarter of the same square, Cortes caused his own palace to be constructed. It was built of hewn stone, and seven thousand cedar beams are said to have been used for the interior. The government afterwards appropriated it to the residence of the viceroys, and the conqueror's descendants, the dukes of Monteleone, were allowed to erect a new mansion in another part of the plaza, on the spot which, by an ominous coincidence, had been covered by the palace of Montezuma. The general's next care was to provide a population for the capital he invited the spaniards thither by grants of lands and houses while the indians with politic liberality were permitted to live under their own chiefs as before and to enjoy various immunities with this encouragement the spanish quarter of the city in the neighbourhood of the great square could boast in a few years two thousand families while the indian district of tlatelolco included no less than thirty thousand the various trades and occupations were resumed the canals were again covered with barges two vast markets in the respective quarters of the capital displayed all the different products and manufactures of the surrounding country and the city swarmed with a busy industrious population in which the white man and the indian the conqueror and the conquered mingled together promiscuously in peaceful and picturesque confusion not twenty years had elapsed since the conquest, when a missionary who visited it had the confidence, or the credulity, to assert that Europe could not boast a single city so fair and opulent as Mexico. 
Cortes stimulated the settlement of his several colonies by liberal grants of land and municipal privileges. The great difficulty was to induce women to reside in the country, and without them he felt that the colonies, like a tree without roots, must soon perish. By a singular provision he required every settler, if a married man, to bring over his wife within eighteen months, on pain of forfeiting his estate. If he were too poor to do this himself, the government would assist him. Another law imposed the same penalty on all bachelors who did not provide themselves with wives within the same period. The general seems to have considered celibacy as too great a luxury for a young country. His own wife, Doña Catalina Juarez, was among those who came over from the islands to New Spain. According to Bernal Díaz, her coming gave him no particular satisfaction. It is possible, since his marriage with her seems to have been entered into with reluctance, and her lowly condition and connections stood somewhat in the way of his future advancement. Yet they lived happily together for several years, according to the testimony of Las Casas, and whatever he may have felt, he had the generosity or the prudence not to betray his feelings to the world. On landing, Doña Catalina was escorted by Sandoval to the capital, where she was kindly received by her husband, and all the respect paid to her to which she was entitled by her elevated rank but the climate of the tableland was not suited to her constitution, and she died in three months after her arrival. An event so auspicious to his worldly prospects did not fail, as we shall see hereafter, to provoke the tongue of scandal to the most malicious, but it is scarcely necessary to say, unfounded inferences. In the distribution of the soil among the conquerors, Cortés adopted the vicious system of repartimientos, universally practised among his countrymen. In a letter to the Emperor he states that the superior capacity of the Indians in New Spain had made him regard it as a grievous thing to condemn them to servitude, as had been done in the islands but on further trial he had found the Spaniards so much harassed and impoverished that they could not hope to maintain themselves in the land without enforcing the services of the natives, and for this reason he had at length waived his own scruples in compliance with their repeated remonstrances. This was the wretched pretext used on the like occasions by his countrymen to cover up this flagrant act of injustice. The Crown, however, in its instructions to the General, disavowed the act, and annulled the repartimientos. It was all in vain. The necessities, or rather the cupidity, of the colonists, easily evaded the royal ordinances. The colonial legislation of Spain shows, in the repetition of enactments against slavery, the perpetual struggle that subsisted between the Crown and the colonists, and the impotence of the former to enforce measures repugnant to the interests, at all events to the avarice, of the latter. The Tlascalans, in gratitude for their signal services, were exempted, at the recommendation of Cortés, from the doom of slavery. It should be added that the general, in granting the repartimientos, made many humane regulations for limiting the power of the master, and for securing as many privileges to the native as were compatible with any degree of compulsory service. These limitations, it is true, were too often disregarded, 
and in the mining districts in particular the situation of the poor Indian was often deplorable. Yet the Indian population, clustering together in their own villages, and living under their own magistrates, have continued to prove by their numbers, fallen as these have below their primitive amount, how far superior was their condition to that in most other parts of the vast colonial empire of Spain. Whatever disregard he may have shown to the political rights of the natives, Cortés manifested a commendable solicitude for their spiritual welfare. He requested the emperor to send out holy men to the country, not bishops and pampered prelates, who too often squandered the substance of the church in riotous living, but godly persons, members of religious fraternities, whose lives might be a fitting commentary on their teaching. Thus only, he adds, and the remark is worthy of note, can they exercise any influence over the natives, who have been accustomed to see the least departure from morals in their own priesthood, punished with the utmost rigour of the law. In obedience to these suggestions, twelve Franciscan friars embarked for New Spain, which they reached early in 1524. They were men of unblemished purity of life, nourished with the learning of the cloister, and like many others whom the Romish Church has sent forth on such apostolic missions, counted all personal sacrifices as little in the cause to which they were devoted. The conquerors settled in such parts of the country as best suited their inclinations. Many occupied the south-eastern slopes of the Cordilleras, towards the rich valley of Oaxaca, many more spread themselves over the broad surface of the table-land which from its elevated position reminded them of the plateau of their own castiles here too they were in the range of those inexhaustible mines which have since poured their silver deluge over europe the mineral resources of the land were not indeed fully explored or comprehended till at a much later period but some few, as the mines of Zacatecas, Guanajuato, and Tasco, the last of which was also known in Montezuma's time, had begun to be wrought within a generation after the conquest. But the best wealth of the first settlers was in the vegetable products of the soil, whether indigenous or introduced from abroad by the wise economy of Cortés. He had earnestly recommended the Crown to require all vessels coming to the country to bring over a certain quantity of seeds and plants. He made it a condition of the grants of land on the plateau that the proprietor of every estate should plant a specified number of vines in it. He further stipulated that no one should get a clear title to his estate until he had occupied it eight years he knew that permanent residence could alone create that interest in the soil which would lead to its efficient culture and that the opposite system had caused the impoverishment of the best plantations in the islands while thus occupied with the internal economy of the country cortes was still bent on his great schemes of discovery and conquest in the preceding chapter we have seen him fitting out a little fleet at zacatula to explore the shores of the pacific it was burnt in the dockyard when nearly completed this was a serious calamity as most of the materials were to be transported across the country from villa rica cortes however with his usual promptness took measures to repair the loss he writes to the emperor that another squadron will soon be got ready at the same port 
a principal object of this squadron was the discovery of a strait which should connect the Atlantic with the Pacific. Another squadron, consisting of five vessels, was fitted out in the Gulf of Mexico to take the direction of Florida, with the same view of detecting a strait. For Cortés trusted, we at this day may smile at the illusion, that one might be found in that direction, which should conduct the navigator to those waters which had been traversed by the keels of Magellan. The discovery of a strait was the great object to which nautical enterprise in that day was directed, as it had been ever since the time of Columbus. It was in the sixteenth century what the discovery of the northwest passage has been in our own age, the great ignis fatuus of navigators. The vast extent of the American continent had been ascertained by the voyages of Cabot in the north and of Magellan very recently in the south. The proximity in certain quarters of the two great oceans that washed its eastern and western shores had been settled by the discoveries both of Balboa and of Cortes. European scholars could not believe that nature had worked on a plan so repugnant to the interests of humanity as to interpose, through the whole length of the great continent, such a barrier to communication between the adjacent waters. It was partly with the same view that the general caused a considerable armament to be equipped and placed under the command of Cristóbal de Olid, the brave officer who, as the reader will remember, had charge of one of the great divisions of the besieging army. He was to steer for Honduras and plant a colony on its northern coast. A detachment of Olid's squadron was afterwards to cruise along its southern shore towards Darien in search of the mysterious strait. The country was reported to be full of gold, so full that the fishermen used gold weights for their nets. The life of the Spanish discoverers was one long daydream. Illusion after illusion chased one another like the bubbles which the child throws off from his pipe, as bright, as beautiful, and as empty. They lived in a world of enchantment. Together with these maritime expeditions, Cortés fitted out a powerful expedition by land. It was entrusted to Alvarado, who, with a large force of Spaniards and Indians, was to descend the southern slant of the Cordilleras, and penetrate into the countries that lay beyond the rich valley of Oaxaca. The campaigns of this bold and rapacious chief terminated in the important conquest of Guatemala. In the prosecution of his great enterprises, Cortés, within three short years after the conquest, had reduced under the dominion of Castile an extent of country more than four hundred leagues in length, as he affirms, on the Atlantic coast, and more than five hundred on the Pacific, and, with the exception of a few interior provinces of no great importance, had brought them to a condition of entire tranquillity. In accomplishing this, he had freely expended the revenues of the crown, drawn from tributes similar to those which had been anciently paid by the natives to their own sovereigns, and he had, moreover, incurred a large debt on his own account, for which he demanded remunerations from government. The celebrity of his name, and the dazzling reports of the conquered countries, drew crowds of adventurers to New Spain, who furnished the general with recruits for his various enterprises. Who would form a just estimate of this remarkable man, must not confine himself to the history of the conquest. 
His military career, indeed, places him on a level with the greatest captains of his age. But the period subsequent to the conquest affords different, and in some respects nobler, points of view for the study of his character. For we then see him devising a system of government for the motley and antagonist races, so to speak, now first brought under a common dominion repairing the mischiefs of war, and employing his efforts to detect the latent resources of the country, and to stimulate it to its highest power of production. The narration may seem tame after the recital of exploits as bold and adventurous as those of a paladin of romance, but it is only by the perusal of this narrative that we can form an adequate conception of the acute and comprehensive genius of Cortés. End of Book 7, Chapter 2